Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 59. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. Today finds us in chapter 11, and then some or not some, in Misunderstood God by Darren Hufford. We are slowly making our way through this book. I don't know about you, Greg, but I'm feeling the need to kind of pick up the pace. I guess one thing I am finding with this is we were talking a little bit before how you were kind of rereading some of the earlier chapters to kind of get up to speed on this one. And I was noting, and you thought it was important to point out, there doesn't seem to be like a buildup from chapter to chapter. I'm I'm seeing more of a, I don't want to call it random grab bag, but that's kind of what pops into my mind, is it there? these are just different aspects of God. So this week we have the great list keeper, and I thought this tied in somewhat amazingly with episode number 33, which was... God is not an idiot. <laughs> that was that was the title of that episode. It was actually a listener feedback about listener feedback. And I guess the big takeaway, the theme that I saw in this chapter that was familiar, which we discussed kind of at length in that episode, was the importance of keeping your sin list at zero. You know, you you've Hufford is, is kind of talking about this idea that some people see God as this big list keeper and that He's keeping track of all the things that we've done wrong, and and Hufford's saying, no, it's exactly the opposite. He doesn't, and this whole idea that we have to go around making sure that we're you know up to date on our sins is just placing the emphasis in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. So that was my take. I could I could call chapter eleven good with that. What jumped out at you, or that you'd want to talk about? Sure. Um, well, I mean, did you did you want to go any further into the kind of the correlation between thirty three and episode 33 and and this chapter did you want to i feel like everything's kind of been said that needed to be said okay well that sounded kind of weird i don't have anything else to add maybe that's a better way of putting it (laughs) okay all right well you know i some tells me you do (laughs) (laughs) no no not necessarily i mean it might turn out that way but um yeah i mean i've uh we've we've taken a bit of a break from darren and i needed to go back in and really reread and i I, so i i kind of went over chapters eight nine and ten before i went to chapter 11 and there's a lot of stuff in those chapters that's really kind of focused my sense of what the book's about where darren's coming from and so when i read chapter 11 um uh, on the one hand, I wanted to have that sense of, you know, where Darren's coming from and what the book's been about, uh, specifically the recent chapters. I mean, you made an interesting point about the, the the way the chapters relate to each other, though, when we were talking just before the podcast. I don't know if you want to well, mention I think your it, sense of that. No, I think I just did a little. Uh, yeah, it was just the idea that I don't see them. Some, a lot of books I read, each chapter kind of flows from one to the next, and they're usually in kind of a trajectory so that when you get to the middle or two-thirds into the book, you can really see where the book's going and it's trying to drive a point home. And I don't see this book doing that. I don't want to spend a lot of time criticizing it. I'm just, I I want to leave it, I guess, more as an an observation that 
it doesn't seem to do that. So I haven't felt the need to go backwards. I'm just trying to go forward and get to the end. I hear you. Okay, good enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a couple things that <clears throat> jumped out at me in Chapter 11. And one in particular that I, I, would, I would love to just have some thoughts that, you know, some of your thoughts. Um, you know, again, I'm just going to touch off on a couple of the themes that I thought were, you know, shaky uh, in Darren. And, and I, I'm not touching off on them because I'm trying to pick them apart or just reiterate problems, but because I want to look at them and then say, here's where I think we should go instead. Here's how we should do this instead. And also, here's some of the problems we, we, we kind of that arise by, by going about it this way. So, I mean, the, the two things that I've kind of really noted about Darren are that some things that he, um, he puts in the book and some of the ways that he phrases things, he's, he's globalizing and taking sort of his perspective and making it everybody's perspective. And that part of that has to do with uh, formulating things in, in a way that I think is – he just hasn't looked at it closely enough, right? Um, and there's also this um, – I think the big thing I got out of rereading those chapters 8, 9, uh, and 10 was this really key notion for Darren on page 93 about what love is about. And I just want to touch on that. I just want to read that. And it's just it's – just, I can just read one sentence there and uh, two-thirds of the way, way down on page 93 – Imagine my surprise when I discovered that the experience of love is not in receiving it, but in giving it. The experience of love is not in receiving it, and in give, but in giving it. And I think the only other thing I would say to kind of contextualize where I'm coming from that's different from Darren. So I would say no. No, and he carries, he carries that throughout the rest of the book and in other places where he talks about he didn't get love. He didn't understand the idea of love until he really started loving people. Yeah. Which would be, which would correspond with this kind of outgoing sense of love is not. Maybe he does. I don't know. I would have a hard time if we were to be able to talk to him. I can't. I'd be shocked if I were to say, "Well, Darren, don't you think love is is a it's a two way street? I mean, don't you also receive love too?" I, I can't see him saying no. Yeah, I wouldn't see him saying no. But it's not stated here either. No, it's it's not. And in fact, the, the next part, place I was going to go to, I mean, we've talked about love and truth. I've talked about love and truth a lot. And from a biblical perspective, I see that coming out of uh, the, the dual nature of God as both sovereign and as father and parent. And that's reflected in the way Christians are typically uh, uh, presented in the New Testament under two general headings of either servant or child. And so for me, it's really interesting. There's this really interesting parallel here with 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 Darren, where on and this is back page last line of 100 and top of 101. God does have a purpose, but that purpose is not for us to be servants and messengers for Him. His purpose is for us to be sons and daughters, and out of those relationships, we become the message. And again, uh, you know, I guess what I think is that there's an idea of love that's not quite right. Love is about being in love and understanding love through being in relationship, being in a love relationship. But the Bible's very clear about God coming to us first and loving us. Therefore, we love God. Again, if you're, if you're reversing that, that notion or if you're making, if you're not taking that notion as a primary one in helping you understand what love means in a Christian context, I think you're making a misstep. And likewise here, what I'm seeing is, 
too much love, too little truth. I think God is sovereign as well as parent. We are, Christians are servants who owe obedience as well as children who live in and for and with and being in love, being loved and in love with God. I think you're onto something there. So I'm going to cheat and go to the end of 12. We, we were, no, we weren't going to talk about 12 today, but but I've this was a very familiar theme, and I think it kind of supports where you're coming from. Okay. Give me a page number. 137, the second to last paragraph. Okay. He, you can really sense that he, like, he really has a heart for people, and he's really wanting them to get it. So he starts, he says, my friend, you you must believe in unconditional love if you want a true relationship with God. What other kind of security is there if it's not total and absolute? Anything less is no security at all. We give it to our children without a thought. Why wouldn't God, who created us, give us the same thing as our Father? And the part that I glommed onto there was, you must believe in unconditional love. And my first thought was, aha, we're back to this whole idea of mentally assenting to something. John, nice. You you mentally assent to it, and then you'll get it. To which I, I you know, ring the big gong because that just I've been trying to mentally assent to everything from pretty much my entire life, and it's not working. So the 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 next step I thought here was okay. Well, if the mental ascension part hasn't worked for me, what would? And it's like, oh, duh, Greg's whole thing around experience. Wouldn't experiencing it help here? Wow. So anyway, I don't know if that ties into where you wanted to go, supports your situ- supports what you were thinking, or it's just an interesting observation. No, I think it's perfect, John. That's really insightful. You know, and it's interesting too, even in that paragraph you read, the contrast between the first <laughs> the first line and the last line, right? We must believe in unconditional love, or you must, if you want a true relationship with God. And the last line is, we give it to our children without a thought. Why wouldn't God who created us give the same as our quote-unquote father? So he's talking on the one hand about, you know, believing, yeah, you're right, intellectual assent. And then on the other hand, it's, it's about giving and receiving. It's about the actual act and experience in the, in the, in the, the second, in the last sentence, right? It's not, it's not proportionate. He's not doing the same thing. His very example of why you should believe is an example based on action and experience. His statement is based on intellectual assent, which for me says, yeah, there's something missing. So I might say you must believe and understand because you have experienced it, right? I would want to be able to believe in it. I'd want to trust in it. I'd want to have an understanding of it. But how can you, how can you have those things uh, about a relational uh, reality when you haven't experienced it? Right. And that's, yeah, that's the whole alarm bell that goes off for me. You know, the critique I receive that, well, my goodness, you have all this knowledge and all this study and all this, I almost said experience, but, but it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't get you there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. No, I think that's, that's awesome. That that's really uh, an excellent tie in. And, and I guess, you know, this is where, you know, again, again, there's, the, I've talked about gold in this book and I would flip back to page 72. You know, why did God create us? Because love requires expression. I think he's got some, that's a nugget. That's a really huge nugget to helping us understand. And he really wants to take us into this idea of God's character. And he said on a number of occasions, if you don't understand God's character, you can't understand or interpret the Bible correctly. And I would say on the one hand, yes, I agree with that. 
right? There's a certain sense in which I approach the Bible, I approach uh, the text with a certain set of lenses, and those lenses are in some way shaded, colored, uh, oriented, attuned, based on the nature of relationship that I have experienced with God. But, you know, here again, when, when we're talking about this with Darren, it seems like there's this mixed bag, right? And, and I guess um, maybe I'll just note, if I can skip back to chapter 11. Uh, chapter 11 is called The Great List Keeper. You know, and it's it's kind of this love does not keep a track account of lists. And and I wanted to just mention a couple of things, and I wanted to bounce bounce something off of you, just to see how you see this versus me. He's he starts off the chapter giving this example of his wife, and he's in the middle. He Darren is in the middle of a counseling session. The phone rings. He normally puts "Do Not Disturb," but forgot picked it up. His wife he's basically counseling a couple who's about to get divorced, and it's going really well. And it looks like he's just about to kind of really kind of cinch things up. And this is you know, going to change the course of the marriage. And his wife calls up and says, I want a separation. He's like, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I've been thinking about it. I'm not happy in this marriage and I want a separation. And that's on page 117. He goes on on the next page to say, you know, I went home. I realized this was out of character for my wife. She was, you know, laughing to herself about it. She apologized a number of times. You know, she just had, she'd been, uh, she'd given birth a little while ago. She just had her, she had, she, he said, uh, we had our first two children back to back. She was in the middle of her first menstrual, menstrual cycle in three years, and it came upon her like an unexpected emotional hurricane. And the, so that's the context, right? And, and it, it's a pretty um, tr- significant uh, situation to be in. And Darren's response is, I made a decision that day that I would never bring this up to be used against her for the rest of my life. And, and I, I guess this is one of the things I really want to point to in the book and I want to try to, it's a small point and I'm not picking on Darren per se, but using this as a jumping off to say, you know, my response to that was, was rather different. Um, and I thought to myself, I don't really know what the context of this situation is. I know they've been married long enough to have two children back to back and that could be two years for Darren. But I, my, my response to this was, and, and I guess to Darren in general, that I, I see Darren doing a lot of turning things on their heads. And sometimes that's good. And sometimes it's not. And I know for me to make that statement for someone listening, it would, if you know, if you've read some of the book, you might think, well, how are you, how are you deciding, Greg? You know, is it just on a, on a, on a whim? that you might decide whether it's good or not good or how it feels to you. And I would say, no, I think it's a lot, it's tremendously based on context. And I think what Darren hasn't given me here is enough context to know what's going on and whether I would think this was a good and loving decision that he made. And he's portraying it that way. I made a good and loving decision in this moment versus, you know, but what's the But what's the flip side? I mean, I tend to agree with him. Okay. I tend to agree with him, and I agree with him in the sense of I can't see a good outcome for having for bringing this up again in the future. I don't know. Maybe it becomes a a pattern in their marriage, and it happens every month. And yeah, then maybe you need to talk about it. But I'm kind of thinking, yeah, that's probably a good idea not to bring this up again. Like, what's the <laughs> point? <laughs> uh, I'm going exactly where you went. Okay. <laughs> so I, I'm going to first of all, you know, if this is a 
In other words, if this is something really out of the blue for somebody, and I, and I mean out of the blue in terms of, you know, I've been married for five, ten, whatever years, and something comes up, and I'm like, wow, I have no idea what's going on here, but I don't think I'm, I should take it at face value. Then, yeah, I, I'm going to not, you know, I'm not going to sort of uh, integrate this into my picture of who this person is, right? But if if you're in a, a context, I don't know, relationship context and marriage context, and, and you're two years in and you get this message, I wouldn't necessarily dismiss that as, oh, that's just somebody having a bad day. That's not the message of I'm having a bad day. That's the message of I don't want to be in this relationship. This keeps, you know, and again, as you said, if this keeps coming up. So I guess, I guess part of, part of what I find difficult is that sometimes Darren takes something that's really a big ticket item. He turns it on its head and says, you know, I think we need to look at this from the other side. And on the one hand, I'm happy to say, sure, I'm going to, oh, I'm happy to turn that over and look at it. I'm not happy to say it belongs like this. That it was upside down before, and I put it the right side up. Well, because I think that we don't get to the place where we've got enough context and we've got enough understanding. And I think I'm going to jump onto the next page. Once, you, I mean, make your comment, but next well, I, page I, where I'm heading. So I feel like it. I mean, it's a short chapter; it's like five pages. Yeah. So to me, it just kind of flowed nicely into his example that God does. So in other words, he's not keeping a list or an account against his wife on this topic. And neither does God, as some Christians believe that God does about our sin. And so, well, towards the end of the chapter, he just talks about how God does not bless us. God does not bless us for being good little boys and girls. God blesses us because God blesses. When you receive a blessing from him, just accept it and know that it's because you are his child. Believe it or not, God doesn't even keep records of what you do right. He doesn't need to. So to me, it just kind of flowed into that. But where where were you going to go? Well, yeah, I might I might have a might have a bone to pick with that one. Um, but let's see if I get picked as I go along. I, I guess what I'm what I'm what I'm what I'm really hunting for is I'm hunting for context, and I'm also hunting for self love. So when I hear Darren say things like it's not about receiving love, it's about giving it, and I think whoa 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 whoa, there are two parties here. I'm sure those parties out there feel great. But you know, I don't get love by giving love. I get love by being in a love relationship and experiencing the full reciprocity of what that means. So if you're talking about one side of the relationship, I get that. If you are talking about a one-sided relationship, mm, I disagree. No, that I disagree would entirely. That would almost fit in with what I, I think of as kind of martyr Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, you know, I'm just loving this person to death, even though they're, you know, they hate me or, yeah, then it, then it, but, and there's a kind of some nobility in this kind of one way street of, I'm just loving this person to death, even though they're a total jerk to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would go so far as to say, I'm, 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 I'm loving them, even though they're, they're, they're not giving me much. Even though there's nothing really going on, they may not be being a jerk to me. They're just, they're indifferent or they're, they don't really care or this is not a love relationship. This is me acting in a loving way towards somebody. Okay. That's, that's, that, that may be what's required, but I don't think I'm going to understand love purely by, by giving that out. And I don't think my honest answer, my, my honest viewpoint, and I think Darren might find this very disagreeable. I, I, I don't know yet. I haven't finished the book is that we don't understand love until we are loved ourselves rightly. I think 
loving others is an important part of that. And we take the understanding we have and we live it out and we get sort of feedback, right? So, but, so what's the solution then? Like, okay, so if, so if we can't understand love until we're loved rightly, so say, okay, so say, say someone listening to this is like, wow, yeah, I've, I don't know that I've ever been in a, in a, a good love relationship. Like, what's the next step? Well, I think in a Christian setting, well, let me, let me say two things. I'm, I'll, I'll backpedal slightly on that. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, we talked about this a while back, one of Wayne Jacobson's podcasts, and you raised something about this. I'm not saying that kids who, or, or people who haven't been, had a, you know, satisfying or fulfilling or, you know, functional love relationship need, you know, they, they can't tell the difference between a slap and a hug. I'm not saying that at all, right? But I do think that there are certain things in us that become undone. It's not just the, it's not just that we need love. It's that we haven't received something we should have that we needed to have. I think it's like maybe going back to Brene Brown. There's a need for belonging within all of us. And of course, I mean, I'm, I could say going back to Brene Brown. I, I think this is a highly Christian and biblical notion. Yeah, I was just thinking we the same need, thing. Yeah, we need to belong. We do. We, it's something that's, that's part of who we are. Brene Brown identifies this. She doesn't identify this as a sense of essence that comes from a created um, reality uh, in terms of what it is to be as a human being. Hers, you know, she's, she stops short of that. She's a, a, a social worker, sociologist, psychologist. She's not going to go into that realm. And in a certain sense, that's 100% fair. But I would say that from a Christian perspective, the relationship, um, you know, the first relationship that people have is with their parents. And that conditions so much. If that parental relationship is off, how on earth can you possibly relate to God as uh, parent and father you know, um, and I and I think that the father thing really does come out of that ancient Near Eastern and uh, the context of the ancient Near East, the context of antiquity. Uh, I think that referring to God as mother is a fine thing, so long as we don't isolate it to mother. And honestly, I think if we isolate God to father, we're making a mistake as well. God encompasses the masculine, God encompasses the feminine, and God is more. God is both and God is more. And I think, you know, sometimes when we say parent, it's like, ah, oh, that feels a bit sterile. It feels a bit anesthetized. What's parent? I can relate to my mother. I can relate to my father. But I think the point of this is that the reality of being a human being, rightly, the way that human beings should be, are to be in relationships where we belong because we are known and we are loved. And, 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 you know, part of what Darren's doing when he's talking about, you know, God doesn't keep lists and, and we don't keep records of wrongs. And I just thought, well, what exactly do you mean by that? Like, I, I do remember the things that have pa- taken place in past. God does remember those things. But God chooses knowingly. God knows who I am. God knows who, who I can be. God has a tremendously full and the most accurate sense of my identity. And God loves me tremendously, despite the things that I do that throw up barriers to the relationship. That's what sin is. Barriers to relationship. Barriers to being in right relationship with God, with myself, with my fellows, with my world. So what's the scripture where that's that's often cited, you know, that God doesn't remember the things that we've done wrong? That's a good question. Let's, Let's see how fast we can find that. 
I'm gonna as look. far as the east is from the west. Whew. Something, something, something. <laughs> oh, the Google nailed it for me. Psalm 103, verse 12. What do you got? Psalm 103, 12. Yeah. As far as east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. What an interesting phraseology. What do you have? What, 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 is your, uh, Google, what does your translation say? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And then it trails off, so I don't have the rest of it. And wow. I don't know what version that is. Yeah. No, 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 no that's... That's but I the, think there's a. I want to say there's something in the New Testament that also talks about this too. Okay, well let's let's search it differently. You think it's? You see, when I East and West in the New Testament in one in the same verse only occurs in one, two, three, four, five verses. Many will come from the East and West. From the East, it flashes as far as the West. Uh, or is it something about God doesn't hold account? Well, I think you've got to let, let's stick with the 103 for just a okay. second here because I think we've got a two different, slightly different notions that make a whole lot of actually go in very different directions. Because I thought you said, how did you frame it originally when you were asking a question? Where's the verse that? Oh, that says that that God pretty much just forgets our sins. He 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 doesn't keep a count of oh, it's he doesn't keep an account of wrongs done and. I've just heard it presented, you know, as isn't this amazing that, you know, we can do all this horrible stuff, but God just completely forgets about it and, and doesn't hold it against us. Well, there's any number of places we could go with this verse too, this verse in Psalms, which uh, is probably topic for another podcast, but the whole idea of fearing God, right. which, which I think want- a lot is, well, sometimes I think a lot more is made of what that's supposed to be than is really supposed to be there. And it'd be interesting to dive into it. Yeah, what does it admit? Because fear, I feel like the whole idea of fear is is sovereign. You, you know, you fear is sovereign and what he could do to you and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, let me let me just, I want to give you some impressions there because I think you've done a really good job here bringing this up. And I had no idea. I mean, I, I the verse was sort of that sense of this, this, this notion as, as far as the East is from the West. But I mean, I'm not seeing that as as forgetting. I'm not seeing that as not keeping a. I'm I'm literally like he removed transgressions from us. No, and you've raised this before that you know, it's not like God can forget certain things. You stated it a little more eloquently than that, but yeah, I feel like we have talked about this before. Yeah, well, I guess I guess it's I want to kind of focus in on that. I I don't know, like my uh, looks like my. My biblical software has just timed out on me. <laughs> oh, here's... Okay, so I went to the beginning. Again, I don't... Oh, okay, I'm in the NIV. This is the NIV. Yeah. And I'm at BibleHub.com. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Psalm 103. I'll, I'll read, I don't know, a few verses here. So here's verse one. Praise yeah. the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. 
The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to talk about, oh, as a father has, okay, and then I'll read a few more. I guess I can't stop here. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children and those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. That's ending at verse 18. Right. This is quite an interesting verse when you think of in light of the idea of father and sovereign. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to kind of be bouncing back between those two ideas. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it's incorporating them both. Oh, and then in verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Which I've often heard this. So so the the vibe in this passage that I pick up and that was taught was, you know, fear God because he's holy and he, you know, and then the whole idea of our sins and that we've done stuff wrong and that he will forgive them. But by the way, fear him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of back and forth, but it always comes down to fear him, which comes up fairly frequently in this passage. Yeah, it does. And I think on that one, just like a brief note, I think we'd be going back to Deuteronomy 6. That's where I would kind of have this this nexus of fear and love together, where fear is this, I mean, fear is the typical stance in the ancient Near East, which is the time of writing of the uh, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Fear is this, the typical stance between the, um, the, 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 the worshiper and the divinity. So, I mean, that's putting it in its context. But what we're, what we're so putting, is fear is fear. Res, I think I read this as res, fear, meaning respect, like respect, or even a level deeper than that. I mean, really respect. What, yeah, is that what uh, you're saying? Well, on the one hand, yes, but but I think the and there may be so that so 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 we may have a different sense of fear the, with um, God uh, the, with Yahweh than we do say with with. Tiamat or or some of these other, you know, divinities or what have you, Baal, etc., right? I think there's actual fear involved. So it's awe, verging on fear or becoming fear or something like that in the ancient Near East. I think that's all part of it. Whether I think some people have said, you know, it's not about being afraid. And I think that there is some of that here. I don't think that's a major theme. I don't think that's supposed to be a dominant theme. But I think there's also, you know, hey, we've made a deal here. And this covenant, right? So covenant's mentioned in this as well. We made a deal. <laughs> you better keep that in mind, right? Because there's there's good things that come out of keeping it, and there's bad things that 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 come out of um, breaking it. And I think the idea that you know we're not really supposed to be afraid of those bad things. We're not really supposed to be afraid of what can happen. I think is a false idea that's really based on you know again sort of too much love, too little truth. Um, but 
But Deuteronomy 6, where we're talking about, I think, the, the, the reason I, I want to center back there in terms of the discussion about fear is because it's where fear and love are really put out together. And love being this, as far as I know, um, the notion of loving the divinity and being loved by the divinity. Now, that is something new. That is something new, particular, unique to the situation between Yahweh and Israel in the ancient Near East. And it is out of that that, that we really kind of begin to see who God is. And so God's not going to come out and say, you know, listen, there's, there's so many things in the ancient Near East that just aren't working. I mean, all this kind of patriarchy, all this, you know, you got 15 wives and stuff like that. Uh, all this bloodshed and uh, this isn't, this isn't the right way to be. We're going to change all of that. Well, you know what? <laughs> People are not going to be able to, 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 to do that. God takes us where we're at. And that includes our cultural historical moment. You know, so when we look back 200 years and we think, I can't believe they used to raise kids like that. And, you know, God is on a hugely, is on, is on this, this enormously long trajectory of working with us. And I'm not suggesting that everything in our current culture is better than everything in any particular past culture. I certainly think we've made some, you know, I, I don't want to go into all that. I'm just not making a blanket statement. But I do think that certain things have improved and that God takes us where we're at. And I'm not sure how much God would want to work necessarily with this idea of, of fear kind of being, seeming like it's the dominant notion versus how much God would want to say, you know, balance out this idea of love and truth. Like in the reality of, hey, I'm a sovereign. And yes, I am your true parent, your true father, your true mother, if you like. Do you know the, so on that, following that same thought, do you know any, just off the top of your head, what's going on in Psalm 103? Like why David's writing it? Like what's happened that he's, do you, is there a backstory to this? Do you know off the top of your head? I don't, I don't know. And I don't know if too many of the Psalms have a sort of a distinct backstory. Well, I'm just thinking like, didn't he write a Psalm or f a, at least one Psalm after the whole thing with Nathan and Bathsheba? I think so. I, th I would, I would certainly think so. I don't know if, if we're able to kind of pinpoint the writing of Psalms with the occurrence of specific situations in the Old Testament. I'm, Fair some enough. Of them, some of them we may be able to because there they're, they're are like keywords and markers that take us back, you know, and I wouldn't want to say this doesn't apply, but I just, I honestly don't know. I'm not a... Sometimes you surprise me though, so I thought... <laughs> <laughs> You'll be like, well, yes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I do have a book sitting over I on my I came up empty this time, but that's okay. You'll, I know you won't let me down next time. <laughs> No pressure. I do have a book sitting over there on the Psalms, so I might just dip into that and see what it says about Psalm 103. But I, I haven't looked, so I, I okay. don't know. Yeah. But but I guess um, the thought I have out of this here is, is this whole idea of, of forgetting, you know, of not keeping lists. And I, I guess what I'm seeing here is this notion of God removes our transgressions from us, you know, um, does not deal with us according to our sins, does not repay us according to our iniquities. And we talked, you know, in last the last podcast about this idea of grace, which is um, really this this sense of pardon, this sense of, of, you know, not acting as one might have a right to act, you know, and, and then kind of acting in a, I don't know, a generously merciful direction, we might say. And, and that's what I'm getting out of this. And, and I'm getting a lot about, you know, uh, God's love orienting God in a certain way that God seeks to, you know, basically create the, the, the ground in, in, keep that ground fertile and, 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 and open 
for the possibility of the of, of right relationship with us. That we rightly understand God, knowing that God rightly understands, truly understands us, and that we relate to God properly. We allow God to relate, first of all, to relate to us properly. And I think that's one of the things that I'm a little bit leery about with Darren, with this whole idea of we understand love by loving other people. And I think we got onto this topic because you asked me, well, what, what would you do? And I would say quite simply, I'd acknowledge my situation. If I don't have good love relationships, I would acknowledge that. And my, my, the second thing I would do is, um, you know, firstly, I would acknowledge that to myself and say, okay, this hasn't been like, you know, my family relationship. I come from a dysfunctional family and I, you know, I'll just speak from, I'll speak as Greg. I won't speak as some hypothetical third party. I come from a dysfunctional family relationship. I understand that my love relationships as I've understood them in that family have not been good. There's been some very broken things. Luckily, uh, fortunately, I was able to get in, you know, connected with, with good counselors and I accepted that counseling and I was able to reflect on my situation and even going into my marriage, realize that, okay, you know, my orientation and choices regarding relationship bear the marks of that past dysfunctional relationality. I've seen some things about it. I've recognized some things. I've distanced myself from some of that. I've picked up some new and better ways of doing things, but it's not like I'm this totally completely new person. And I think what, what I needed particularly, the, 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 the core of the brokenness in, in my life in terms of love relationship was between me and my father. And so it comes as just this perfect fit, this ultimate synergy, that the healing that I experienced in coming to God was also through being loved by a man old enough to be my father who expressed deep, sincere, fatherly love. And he was somebody that is not just some, some guy that, that, that I had no interest in, that I, wasn't, that I had no respect for, somebody I deeply respected, somebody I deeply valued, somebody um, that I trusted and who had earned my trust, who had earned my respect. And the interweaving of how this person expressed love and me seeing that there's so much more in that love than this person could have possibly, should have possibly offered. It was like Darren's example of his wife. This is so out of character. What's going on here? I got to look, I got to dig deeper. And when I dug deeper into that situation, I'm looking, I'm just like, you can call this crazy coincidence, Greg, but you know, all the pointers say this is God. People praying for you. You're in this Christian place. You've been, you know, working at how to get rid of God. And and all of a sudden you've got something you didn't even understood that you, you hadn't even understood that you needed. And it was provided to you, it was given to you, it was offered to you. You know, it wasn't forced down my throat. But the reality of being with God, this is this is so deeply true that I would just I'd be hammering my hand on the table here if it wasn't going to make the mic jump and go blah blah blah. It's that God seeks to God offers God's self to us. God does not force us. But man, when you find something that you deeply desire that is deeply a need for you. And I'm talking, uh, you know, need and desire in terms of, we can go back to Brene Brown again, this need to belong, this need to feel compassion, to be compassionately treated by others, the need to be able to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart and to hear that story essentially being flushed out in front of you, seeing the missing parts of, hey, I love you and not having heard that in a way that mattered. I guess that's what people need. And, and I know that probably sounds maybe unobtainable, like well, this impossible thing. <laughs> it also doesn't square, and maybe this is too much of my baggage, but I don't see how that squares with verse 17 
in Psalm 103, because this would read to me like God's love is conditional. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. So if you don't fear him, he's not going to love you. Am I reading that the wrong way? No, I think you're reading it 100% the right way. I would just ask the question, what's the context? Who's writing this to whom about what? It doesn't matter, man. It's in the Bible. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> um, Thank you for bringing that bad taste of evangelical reality to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good, fair point. A verse like this is just so familiar to me. It's just, in other words, you can't have the good stuff unless you do something. So, you know, the application of this verse is, well, you got to fear God to experience his love and you must not be fearing him enough. You must try harder. You must do something to experience God, which, again, is the complete opposite of your presentation, which is that God comes to us. Well, um, if if we're talking the Old Testament, you know, um, and we're talking, we obviously are, we're talking Psalm 103, we're talking about an Israelite author writing about a God who's identified as Yahweh. We need to go back to that original situation of uh, of Israel, you know, and I realize, you know, there there's a whole Genesis begins in Genesis one. I realize that. I recognize that. But the formal beginning of Israel, and this is the context, right? Verse 17 is followed by verse 18. To those who keep his covenant. Right? This notion of covenant that the 17 and 18, they're very closely tied together. Right? They're one after the other. And I'm not trying to supersede the rest of the um the psalm, but we have to go back to the promise that was made to Abraham before the covenant. So this idea that that God only loves those who do, you know, who fear him and those who keep the covenant, well, there's a promise that was made before the covenant was given. The generosity of God and the love of God needs to be understood through that whole context. And if you're seeing it just here, I would say, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to, mine says, children's children, and I'm reading from the NRSV, I would say yes, and, and, right? So it says, and his righteousness, righteous, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep the covenant and remember to do his commandments, and, and God still made a promise that preceded the covenant. At the time of the writing of this psalm, that promise was going to be made good on, and nobody knew how. Well, I, you know, if we're, if we're seeing this in the David, Davidic period, that's before the exile, right? So it wasn't quite this sort of uh, people, Israelites throwing their hands up in the air saying, oh boy, we're really in big trouble here. We are, we are in bad, we're in bad straits here, right? This is, this is really dire. It wasn't quite that, that dire, but, but you still have a lot of stuff going on that's not how it's supposed to be, right? In terms of Israel and that covenant relationship with God. But, you know, God is still going to make do, make good on that promise. And I think, again, if we see these, 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 these chapters in anything other than the, the, the full and greater context, God is love. Why did God create ex amore, out of love? How did God make a covenant? After he made a promise, or after God made a promise. God will not fail to make good on that promise, and God has made good on that promise. And the making good of that promise ultimately will be seen at the end of time. Right. That's, that's how it's going to work out. It sounds like I'm cheating. You know, if you want to see the, the, the reality of that goodness now, I would say that stories of people who have experienced God's love 
and who love God in return are where to look, you know? And, and I think in that case, uh, there's nothing for me to do other than say, yeah, mine is one of those stories. You may disagree with it. You may disbelieve it. You may think I falsified it, but it's my story and I'm sticking with it. And I base my life on how I have re-understood who God is, re-understood myself through being in that relationship with God and understood my existence as a result of those two things. So I, I guess in a very real sense, this has kind of turned into a, a, a bit of a podcast about well, what do you do about experiencing God's love when it's not there already? And I would say, acknowledge it, dig into it, talk to God about it. If you have the ability as a listener to believe in God, if that's something, the existence of a of a higher being that is, is believable to you, then great. You know, and if you don't, I would still say acknowledge that. Acknowledge that to the air. I don't believe in you. I'm, you know, and if you're a truth seeker and you say, you know, I, I, I would rather do what's true than what's false, even if it's painful, then I would acknowledge to the air uh, or to the universe or whatever you want to call it. I don't believe in you. I don't believe in any sort of God that might be reflected in this uh, particular book that people call the Bible. And if you have any interest in showing yourself, I'll, I'll pay attention if you show up. I'll pay attention if you're perceptible to me. And providing that one does that on the realization that one's ability to perceive may be needed, may need to be heightened, may need to be attuned. And I think in those, under those situations, the, the, the next step is probably to, to associate yourself with people and with communities where you feel that love is being demonstrated well. You know, and I'm not necessarily saying that's going to be a church. It, it might be, but it might be other places. And I think, in other words, I'm, I'm really kind of definite on this idea that God is love. When you find love, when this, when you find something that really resonates deeply with you, there can be some issues with that, right? Our ability to perceive, our ability, our sense of what resonates. I mean, for some people, uh, there's a lot of resonance with different perspectives on sexuality that may indeed be, be more detrimental than they are beneficial or maybe more sidetracking. So there are questions. Uh, and I'm not saying, I'm just, I'm using sex as one example. There are, there are numerous examples I could choose from. And sex is not necessarily the most prominent one. It just came to mind. So there's, there's an issue with that on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that keeping the pursuit of love as a primary objective in one's life will bring one usually closer to God than further away. Go with that. Go with what you can do. Don't make it into something you're not doing, can't do, won't do. Okay, fine. Fair enough. Acknowledge those things for what they are. I can't do them, won't do them, uh, shouldn't do them, whatever it is, and go with it. And try to build uh, on what you have and try to um, be open to the fact that, yeah, if your background is broken, then probably your perception and your, your attunement needs refining. And I think if you've got that attitude, yeah, God, God is there and God wants to work with us very much. But God, there are certain things, I mean, God's not going to do all the work because that's just not, that's not how it works. It's not how a relationship works. And no matter what stage you're at in terms of, can you believe in this? I believe it, but I don't understand it. I believe it and I understand it, but I don't trust. You know, all of those steps along the way, God is there to work with us. Some of those, uh, some of that work is ours. Some of that work is God's. And some of that is this strange blend. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on the website 
at untanglingchristianity.com slash 59. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.